0: Hey guys, it's Andrew Knowlton, subbing in for Adam to introduce today's podcast. Yesterday, we revealed our top 10 best new restaurants in America of 2017. Every year, senior editor Julia Kramer and I spend months a lot of time on the road, crisscrossing the country, eating at all the restaurants we think might be worthy of a spot on the list. We choose 50 nominees, and then we narrow that down to what we call the hot 10. You can read about it in our September issue and online at bonappetit.com. And today, Julia and I will be talking to Adam about how we created the list, what went into it, our best meals, the best dishes we had. All right, here we go.
1: Kramer, welcome back to uh, Bon Appetit. Kind of, sorta.
2: Thanks for having me on.
1: How's the baby?
2: He's doing good. He loves to eat and sleep.
0: Ah, kind of, kind of like us. How old is Philip
2: now? He is fifteen days old.
0: Fifteen days. Wow!
1: So you've been at home for fifteen straight days, which was the opposite of your sort of routine while researching the Hot Ten when you were on the road all the time, right?
2: Yeah, and I thought that that was really hard work. Um, and I would say that uh, the first 15 days of the baby has been much harder. Really? I thought, Wait I a
0: minute. You mean having a baby is harder than our <laughs> job <laughs> work? Going to restaurants? Yep.
2: Um,
1: I do. When I when Marlon was born, got nine years ago. The one thing I remember, he was born in December. The entire month of December felt like one long dark day. Like it just it, like there was no like, no beginning
0: middle or end it just kept going. Well, it was dark. It was it was dark, but
1: you're always like getting up in the middle of the night and
0: it just the hours. There was you know be, you know what I mean like there was. See, I remember the, for the second one, I don't remember anything because I went to China a week after my child. <laughs> yes,
1: Noelton oh got on a plane with Danny Bowen to do an article on him when Mission Chinese was happening, uh, opening in New York and stuff, and they literally a week after uh, Sig was born went to China and left his wife I, at home. I just
0: want to say that that it. Whatever it says about me, but it says a lot about my wife and what a lovely.
1: Yes, and God bless uh, Christina. And also says you're committed to your job. So let's talk about that. Um, All right. So this year, guys, again, researching the hot ten, picking the ten best new restaurants in America, while also assembling a list of the fifty nominees or finalists. uh, Required a lot of travel, a lot of eating. Kramer, let's start with you. Uh, we have to bring this up again. A year ago when you were researching your list, um, you literally ate yourself into the hospital thinking you could go two <laughs> weeks straight on the road, going to five restaurants a day. You got pneumonia. You went back to your parents' house, got in your bedroom, and like just collapsed and ended up in the emergency room, Correct.
2: Wow, it sounds so depressing when you tell it like that. But yeah, it's true. <laughs>
1: it's true. So, so how did you change things up this year? Did you? Did you? Yeah. You know, was there a different strategy in terms of going out and eating so much? She got pregnant. That's what she yeah. did this year.
2: <laughs> yeah. So um, most of the travel this year took place in my second trimester, and so my goal was really not to get sick again because that would have really been bad. Um, but. To be honest, I think I just learned my lesson a little bit, and it helped this year that I wasn't drinking. <laughs> so I think that helped keep things in moderation a little bit. Um, but I still ate just the same as I did the previous year and bounced from city to city the same way and uh, was very grateful every day that I still felt good.
0: That, so Did you... Work out. Uh, compared to last year, uh, Julia, did you have more of an appetite, or were there some times where you were looking at a plate of oysters and were just like, I can't eat this because I feel sick in my stomach?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get upset comments from listeners, but I did eat a tremendous amount of raw seafood on this trip. My doctor said it was fine. Um, And I did... I had pretty much the same appetite. People would say to me, oh, this is like the perfect job for you because you're eating for two. And I was like, well, like I kind of was already eating for two, so I don't need to be like (laughs) eating for four. Um, So I would say it was about – I kind of kept up the appetite, and the only hard part was um, it's just a long time to be sitting at an uncomfortable – Stool or chair or something when you're pregnant, because you're t- you're not talking about like one meal that's two hours. You're talking about maybe two or three meals, and so you, you're often. I often got stuck in sort of uncomfortable situations physically, but that was harder for me than I had no problem eating all the food.
1: I mean, that's an interesting point. These days, uh, in the last ten years, there's been that advent of. I don't know, I guess you would call it the Momofuku uh, effect of a lot of restaurants that now have benches or stools or very hard wooden seats. Um, and it's a different sitting experience. I went to this restaurant in D.C. for a talk, and I, I'm blanking on the name. I feel bad. But it was a bit more catered to a more sort of like Washington lobbyist sort of mm-hmm. clientele. And they had these big, cushy what leather chairs. Cute. And I sat down. And I was like, wow. Wow. It's just so relaxing and pleasant. I forgot what it's like to come to a restaurant and be really comfortable. Uh, and I was like, oh, this is nice. So, yeah, I kind of I, – I enjoyed that. Um, Kramer, so yeah. let, just for those who didn't listen last year, so you, you, you stuck to a lot of the more eastern seaboard. You, so you didn't have to do long flights out west, Correct.
2: I did. I did the East Coast and the Midwest this year, and Andrew took the West Coast and the South.
1: All right, so let's say you're in Chicago or Philly or something. Can you describe your average day? I mean, how many restaurants are you going to? Are you still doing yoga? Give, give us a rundown.
2: Sure. So um, I guess we could take, for instance, a day in Boston. So I would... I take the train in in the morning from New York and then go immediately to probably two places for lunch. So one of the places that I went to when I I was in Boston for a couple of days, one of the lunches that I had was at a deli called Mamala's, which ended up on the top 50 list. That was definitely my favorite meal. Uh, that I had in Boston and Cambridge. Um, And so I would have this delicious meal at Mamala's. I would eat, you know, all this chopped liver and bagels and pastrami and all this stuff. Mm. And then I would head to the next spot um, and eat, you know, a lamb sandwich or a tortilla española or whatever it might be. And then in the afternoon last year, I would definitely have done hot yoga. I did hot yoga every day on the road last year, which was awesome. Um, This year I couldn't do that. So I mostly would just try to take a long walk or a nap or maybe (laughs) do a little bit of shopping. Um, Just something where I was uh, not eating for, you know, two hours. Um, And then I would rally and head out to, you know, two dinners, um, maybe stop by a bar where I wasn't going to drink, but I wanted to just have some snacks or check out a certain trend that we were interested (laughs) in or something like that. So, um, the usual schedule, you know,
1: and then when you're going to dinner, for instance, uh, Are you calling up old friends from college who you haven't seen in 12 years, but you heard live in Boston now? And like, hey, I know we haven't talked since that (laughs) one time on Facebook, but do you want to go have dinner with me? Or what are you doing for Dining Companions? I'm
0: buying.
2: Yeah, yeah. that's, That's actually my favorite part of the whole thing is I get to see all these people who I would never, like, plan a visit to go hang out with. But because I'm in their city and whether it's, you know, Denver or... Cincinnati or wherever it might be, I'm always meeting up with random people. And if I don't know someone in that city, I'll ask around to friends, like, hey, do you know anyone in Kansas City who <laughs> would like to go out for dinner? And you can always find someone.
1: Nolton, how does Julia's schedule jibe with yours when you're on the road this, this past year?
0: What I wanted to do this year is be much more strategic. I felt like over the past couple of years that I, towards the end of the research, kind of fell off a cliff and just got this kind of food nausea Mm -hmm. it was just too much and at the end of the day i was going to places um i mean you still want to check out as many as you can but i just became more strategic about it and would just pop in and not feel guilty like if somebody you know if i talked to somebody and they said you don't need to go there somebody i trusted then i didn't go there you know i just didn't have the time to do it.
1: How often have you guys walked into a place and like when you're on a blind date and you see the person, you're just like, yeah, this is not going to work. How often have you walked to a restaurant and like, yeah, I'm not, I'm just, no, I'm not going to do this.
0: I I mean, for me, I would say every single day really? I would walk in because, you know, <laughs> I no, but I would try to hit, you know, whether it's, I wouldn't have 10 meals, but I'm constantly in between walking around and like peering into windows. And if you've been doing this for a while, you can kind of just... You know, it's not a bad thing, but you have your types. I have my type. Mm-hmm. I really do. And that doesn't mean I can't be surprised sometimes and be like, wow. So are, we, are, we about, are we talking about blind dates or no, restaurants? <laughs> well, we're talking about relationships, whether they're with people or Ooh, or with or with restaurants.
1: Nice metaphor.
0: And I have, I have, I can look in and be like, I cannot. I look at the menu and be like, I don't need the, you know, the warm goat cheese arugula salad like it's just not what i'm looking for and i don't think it represents what's going on in food in america so i would be like you know what cross it off the list well also you also bring up a point and
1: the two of you uh which we in the september issue of bon appetit which is our best new restaurants issue uh the entire front of the magazine uh is devoted to quote-unquote everything but the food and that restaurants so much of the restaurant experience is beyond food it's it's the lighting it's the playlist it's Mm -hmm. the graphics it's the furniture it's the cool bathrooms Mm -hmm. uh and that's at least half of one's experience when a, a restaurant is 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 more than just food,
0: right? The, the, I think the best restaurants, you know, they take the lighting and they take the waiters' uniforms and they take the design all into account because, for the average person who doesn't necessarily know how to make food or doesn't know all the crazy ingredients, that's how they can relate to a restaurant. And I think a, a, a mediocre meal can only be enhanced by the setting and and the hospitality and a really good meal can, can even the food can be hurt by the lack of that yeah and so I don't understand restaurants I mean I know understand shoestring budgets but there's a way to do it that still has a personality Oh, too, yeah but too they- many too many restaurants though when you go into them it's just they don't. They have zero personality. You you don't know what yeah. city you're in, or there's no point of view. Yeah,
1: I think in, in you in you on this year's list, which we'll get to shortly, uh, you salute a lot of smaller, independent-minded restaurants that still have a lot of spirit and attitude and personality, and that doesn't. It's There is not a direct connection between how much money you spend building out a restaurant and, and the effect of it. It's like, it's like no. fashion. You can spend a lot of money on bad clothes and look like a jackass. Yes. Or you can spend very little money and have just great natural personal style. Um, so let's talk about a few of the trends that you guys picked up on and enjoyed this year as you were eating around. Some things that sort of popped up at restaurant after restaurant that you that you really sort of liked, whether it's food-wise or sort of style decor-wise. Kramer, you got one? You want to start with one?
2: Yeah. Um, where do we want to start? Well, the absolute biggest trend, which was what I wrote um, a piece about in the June issue, was wood-fired grilling. That was just, like, insane to me as I was traveling the country this year, how many restaurants were doing live fire cooking in really unexpected places, whether it was um, Vicia in St. Louis, which is on our top 50 list, or the Purple House in Yarmouth, Maine, which is a wood-fired bagel place, um, which is also on the top 50 list. It felt like half the places I walked into um, had these raging fires going, which was really awesome. Um, On a similar beat, um, Andrew chose a few barbecue places for this list. I think more than we typically have, would you say?
0: Yeah, that was, there's a lot of movement in the barbecue world this year and, and opening, uh, you know, uh, places moving into cities and, you know, kind of that stereotype that a barbecue place has to be down a country road and kind of be in a shack and all that. Like, why does that have to be that? And a lot of them opened up like big, beautiful restaurants that happen to yeah. serve barbecue. Barbecue
1: is big business these days and it's fascinating even and you know, we've seen this sort of I don't even call it a renaissance in New York cuz it's not like it goes back to having great barbecue back in the day but there's been this surge of really good quality barbecue yeah. in cities like New York that normally never had it and it's spreading and it's like good legit barbecue and and you and you're a southern guy you would, you would you'd testify to that right Yeah
0: I mean there's no there's there's no other food that that can bring people together from all different walks of life than barbecue period yeah. I mean yeah. there's nothing like it
1: What about uh, Nolton, What about you in terms of either food or vibe?
0: Um, You know, to me, this was the year of the sandwich, and I know that people might be like, "Yeah, you know, sandwiches are have been around forever," but this was really the year that I I kind of, for the past couple years, just got sick of sandwiches because I just, you know, there, there was no inventiveness going on, and I think the shift from the tweezer kind of ten people standing over a plate and doing that. Kind of sent people back to the drawing board and what do they really like to eat. And for a lot of people, that was sandwiches and especially chefs. Sandwiches and barbecue. Sandwiches and barbecue. <laughs> so I think you were getting these crazily inventive, and we can talk about that later because that's a kind of a drum roll uh, moment. But, you know, I, you know, from Mean Sandwich in Seattle to Lucky's Deli um, in Durham, North Carolina, to a certain place in New Orleans, To even non-sandwich restaurants, it was just like, you know, taking seemingly classic and like things you couldn't change, like a bologna sandwich, and making it new again. And I just thought it was so exciting um, trying all this stuff. And it's hard to cook food that people have um, some sort of reference to and nostalgia because there's a lot of expectation when you do that. And to me, that was the most exciting thing is walking into a sandwich place at two in the afternoon and seeing somebody bring that same focus and detail to attention that they would you know, a tasting menu yeah. five years ago. No,
1: very cool. I mean, I have I a lot of opinions when it comes to sandwiches. <laughs> uh, and I, I love the fact that when people give sandwiches the love they deserve and they really think out the, 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 yeah. the architecture of the sandwich, the mixture of ingredients, where to where do you put the meat in relation to the vegetables so they don't slide apart, having the right amount of meat so it doesn't overflow. Like, it's, it's an art, and God bless them. Uh, Kramer, what decor or or sort of vibe trends did you enjoy this year while dining out?
2: You know, they say having a baby drains all the um, brain
1: cells. So. <laughs> you talked. You, you, did, you did something fun in the magazine about paint colors and like the color palettes of restaurants, oh, which I yeah,
2: find fascinating. Yeah. Thank you for thank you for reminding me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, yeah, one thing that I thought was really fun this year was that um, there seemed to be a little more color and fun in. The uh, design of restaurants, I feel like for the last couple of years, there was a lot of white subway tile, a lot of that like Kinfolk magazine, very spare, minimalist, feels like you're in Silver Lake type of vibe, which is very beautiful and kind of soothing, um, but can also feel a little bit um I don't know, all the places start to feel a little bit the same. And so it was cool to go to, say, Dixta in St. Louis and have the walls be painted, um, you know, in sort of like teal and deep blue and pink. And obviously, I think a lot of people know that this is a big year for pink. There was a ton of pink in restaurants. Um, So that was sort of fun and lively and just a little bit, brought a little bit more of joie de vivre, I think, to the whole
0: experience. I thought from doing this for several years, this was the most fun I had eating out this year. I don't know if that's a reaction to, you know, the times or, or what, but if I, you know, if I start looking at the 50 and then I look at the 10, they're all fun restaurants. You know, there's nothing that's too serious or taking itself too seriously. It was like, I don't know. I don't know if you had that same thing, Julie, but we, we had a good, I feel like we had a good time this year and it was exciting we're gonna do our, our
1: hot ten drum roll in a minute, but before we get to that, one feature we've had the last couple of years, which I've really enjoyed as a as a as a reader slash editor, uh, is Restaurant City of the Year. Uh, last year. It was Washington, D.C. That's correct. My hometown, which shocked me. I didn't, I was like, really? And then I was like, oh, and then I went down there recently and I was like, oh, wow, there are so many restaurants in D.C. now that I want to go to. Uh, and how much, how sort of vibrant that city has become and diverse. And it, uh, that, I just thought I was really inspired how uh, restaurants can sort of inject a town with sort of life and, and point of view and personality. So I thought that was great. Uh, that was last year. Julia, what is this year's city of the year?
2: I'm very excited to say that this year's restaurant city is Chicago.
1: Hmm. Wait, who's from chi- Wait, who's from town. Chicago? You're, yeah. Oh, you're from Chicago. Did we vet this, Naughton? Uh-huh. Did you sign off on this?
0: All I know is I saw pictures of the baby's room, and there's cub stuff all over the walls. So I think somebody oh got a, somebody <laughs> got a kickback from the uh, tourism board of yeah, Chicago. I'm sure. I'm
1: sure. I'm sure some aldermen were sending Julia yeah Julia's there, some, <laughs> some, some some stuffed envelopes.
2: I just want to say that Andrew was completely on board with this and agrees with me that Chicago is the restaurant city
0: of the year. (laughs) It's true. I'm just glad that I don't have to hear you talk about the merits of a Chicago hot dog anymore because you realize there's more to Chicago than just deep dish pizza.
1: (laughs) What did you love about Chicago this year dining-wise and restaurant-wise?
2: Okay, so I'll just say, you know, even though I am from Chicago, I... And I really do not think I'm biased toward it. Last year, we didn't even have any Chicago restaurants on the Hot 10. Um, but this year, you know, obviously, I made a few visits to Chicago uh, as an Andrew, and I was just blown away. It was like each time I went home, there was not enough hours in the day to go to all the new restaurants that had opened and all the places that I heard were really great. So some of the highlights were... Um, a new uh, Mexican restaurant called Me Takaya, which is from this woman chef named Diana De Villa. I'm not exactly sure I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, and she just sort of popped onto the scene a couple years ago, and I was just blown away by her food. Um, it's a small little place in Logan Square, which is still sort of the most happening restaurant neighborhood um, in Chicago. And um, I really loved that place. And that was sort of on the more casual end of things, although it is sit down. And then there were the higher end places that opened, like Smith, which is from these chefs, um, John and Karen Shields, who used to have a restaurant called um, Townhouse in Virginia and came back to Chicago and opened this sort of fine dining, tasting menu restaurant with a more casual bar with this amazing burger downstairs. And that's in the West loop and then it was just like I couldn't get enough meals in at every end of the spectrum, whether it was um, you know, just like a casual um lunch place that served sausages like Kimski and Bridgeport or um like a beautiful tasting menu at Elski, which is also in the West Loop. Um it's just I don't know. I was I was really blown away. I could not I couldn't get
1: over it. Andrew, would you say, is there a common trait that unites restaurants in Chicago? Like there might be in terms of like Portland restaurants Mm. or certain cities or, you know, Austin or something, you know? I
0: don't know. When I think about Chicago over the past years and particularly to the Hot 10, it it seems like Chicago is an incubator for kind of international restaurants where Um, you had fat rice a few years ago, you had Ruxpin a few years ago, you had parachute. And I think these are all first or second generation immigrants who are taking the cuisine they grew up with, but, you know, flipping it on its head and making it modern in, in, in a way. And I think for whatever reason, uh, Chicago, you know, encourages that. And, and, you know, I don't know if that's I don't know why that is, you know, because sometimes people think of it as such a meat and potatoes town, but it's so diverse in terms of the food there, and it, you know, it's, it's, um, I don't know. It, I find over the past couple of years, it's become the most, one of the most exciting cities, you know. Even it does, it's just not pretentious. It doesn't take itself too seriously no, the way it,
1: that. It, it- it doesn't. I, th- I think the food there is very fun and accessible, but you still have those sort of, those pillars of the city in terms of, like, Grant Ackett's and his influence on mm-hmm, the city. Mm-hmm. You have... Rick Bayless. Rick Bayless, and you also have Paul Conner with mm-hmm. you know, with Blackbird and, and Avec and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And those, so the, there's sort of a standard of excellence that those chefs have sort of established for the rest of the city to sort of aspire to. And
0: a lot of, and a lot of those, I mean, that's an important point, that, you know, a lot of those great chefs are, you know, they are... Uh, Mentors and those people go and, and stay in Chicago and open up their other restaurants. Yeah, someone
1: tweeted out the other day when we announced our fifty, how many of the chefs nominated in the fifty were Ackett's disciples? Did you see that tweet? I didn't. Yeah, I forget. There's someone I can find it on our on our on our tweet on the Twitter. Um, all right, Kramer. Are you ready to announce the hot 10, the best new restaurants in America?
2: I'm so ready.
1: Drum roll. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to bang through the Hot 10, 10 through 1. Uh, each restaurant, whichever of you guys ended up writing up that restaurant and sort of taking it on as your own, you're going to talk about it, what you loved about it, and then talk about what the most delicious thing you ate at that restaurant was, okay? So, Ooh, sounds
0: great. Wh- Before I do that, I yeah. just want to say this Hot 10 was compiled uh, 152 days. Julie and I spent on the road. Uh, 35,000 miles traveled. We went to 41 cities. Uh, I personally ate 72 oysters with this research in mind. 12 12 (laughs) cutlets. Um, We stole 134 menus also from all the restaurants. Cutlets.
1: That was one of my favorite trends of the year. We have something in the September issue like the cutlet country from schnitzel to katsu to milanese, like crispy fried breaded meat. Never not good.
0: Never not good. And... Uh, zero In and Out Burgers uh, consumed this year for me. Anyway, all right. So number ten, yes, on our list is a restaurant in Raleigh, North Carolina called uh, Brewery Bavana. Um, it's an interesting restaurant. It's on paper. It sounds like a mess. It's it's basically four concepts in one. There's a floral shop. There's a brewery with a long beer kind of beer bar. There's a little kind of bookstore that also has like a library that you can go check stuff out of, and then if that wasn't enough, it's they serve dim sum, and it's this beautiful. It's right along a park. Um, it's this beautiful space. It's white. Um, there's flowers everywhere. There's palms, and it, it. It to me, it almost was like a community center for Raleigh. Ooh, I like that. And a place where. And they make a point of this is everyone is welcome. North Carolina has gone has been in the press recently mm-hmm. for some stuff. The interesting thing about this, this is um, a sister and brother duo, uh, Van Visa and Vansana Nolintha, who are first generation. They're Laotian. They have a restaurant next door, which is a Laotian restaurant. But they met this guy, um, Patrick Woodson, who wanted to open up a brewery. And they became friends. Um, he had traveled in Laos and... Next thing you know, they're teaming up. He's opening the brewery. They're opening the restaurant inside. And it's just, it could be, it's an amazing restaurant to exist in, in, in Raleigh because it's, I don't know, it's so ambitious in a way. It feels like a concept, but it was just, they combined four of their loves and four of the people who run each of the units in there. And on top of that, you're, you're getting dim sum that is as good as any that I had this year. Right. Um, all be- th- best,
1: most delicious thing you <laughs> ate or drank there.
0: I would say the crab fried rice, and it arrives covered in this huge egg crepe. Um, it almost looks like a dome, and then you just kind of, uh, you know, cut it up and mix it all around. And it's we're so close to the coast there, so the crab is just so fresh. That's an oh, amazing dish. That's amazing.
1: All right, number nine. Is this you, Julia?
2: This is me. Um, number nine is Nixta, which is a Mexican restaurant in St. Louis. Um, I was really excited to try and get to some of the smaller cities in the Midwest this year. That was definitely a goal of mine. Um, And it really paid off because I had amazing meals in um, both Kansas City and St. Louis. And Nixta is run by a chef named Teo Carillon, and he worked for a long time at a restaurant called um, Alea, which is owned by a guy named Ben Paremba, who also owns Mixed Up, And um, as I mentioned, it's a really colorful, fun restaurant, and what I think sets the cooking apart from other Mexican restaurants is that the chef really pulls from so many different sources. Like, it's very much his style of Cooking and that he incorporates, you know, Mediterranean flavors. There's like rose water in the ceviche, but he also is making his grandmother's mole. And it's just the most delicious food, and you just want to go there and drink a ton of mezcal and hang out. Um, and I would say the best thing that I ate there was the octopus, and I had a ton of octopuses here. I don't know if you did too, Andrew. Um and this was just the most perfectly cooked, so crispy on the outside, tender on the inside without being like weirdly soft and mushy, and served with um, one of, I think, like two or three different moles that um, carrion makes in-house. So it's a very fun place. I think everyone should go to St. Louis and go there.
1: All right.
0: Uh, number eight. Number eight, that's me. That is... Uh... Kumuri Tatsuya, which is in Austin, Texas. The the gentleman Japanese guys who owned this place uh, first opened up Ramen Tatsuya, which was in our top 50 2013. So this is something that Julie and I do is kind of track these chefs as they open up other restaurants and see how they've grown. And, and this one is cool because it's a mashup basically between an izakaya, which is kind of like a Japanese gastropub, and Texas barbecue joint. And the minute you walk in, you see the Japanese writing and all the Japanese kind of kitsch on the walls, but then it smells like a Tex- Texas barbecue joint. I, I
1: would like to go here.
0: You would like this place. Yeah. It's loud. It's rambunctious. I, I kind of... And, you, they ha-
1: and they have ice cold Japanese beer?
0: Ice cold. Ice and cold. they have ice cold Lone Star, too. They got, uh, it. They got uh, it all. Adam, you'll know this reference. The Double Deuce Bar... Do you know what the double deuce oh, dude, bar is? This
1: is from uh, Roadhouse. With, Roadhouse
0: with Patrick Swayze. Yeah. He, I was
1: watching that on cable the other day where there was like the big fist fight. Oh, yeah. And the, but then the guy walks in, the owner or whatever, and he's like, all right, that's enough. That's right. enough.
0: When you're sitting at the the booth and you're kind of like you're eating like ramen filled with brisket or you're, you can eat these crazy stuff like Kara, which is – Squid marinated in its own innards, which is delicious. You almost think that Patrick Swayze's kind of kind of <laughs> rambled through the door because it's this low slung roadhouse. Everyone's having a good time. There's there's like fish bowls that you you're drinking these you know libations out of, and I don't know. It was just so much fun, but also the food is so amazing, and it's this kind of cross cultural thing that. I don't know. I just had a good time with it. I mean, I think if you go there, there's there's a whole section of the menu um, that's called chinmi, um, which basically translates in Japanese to rare taste. And it and and they have a bunch of that stuff. That's where that the squid is. They have crispy stingray fin. Um, they have charred mateko, which is kind of salted cod roe. But then they also have all kinds of smoked stuff. And there's something there for everybody. I, it makes me jealous about austin texas thinking about kamari
1: all right well i'm going next time I go to south by southwest or something uh number seven another restaurant named spring
0: the, yeah okay so this restaurant uh is normcore to the t i don't know if you can call a restaurant normcore, but again it's it's called spring there's little to no ambiance um the vibe is is quite welcoming um and it's well that's the other thing it's it's not in atlanta it's kind of in a suburb of atlanta it's in marietta georgia um which is a cool little there's a little town center um, and you cross the train tracks it's a husband and wife both korean first generation it's run by brian so um and his wife carrie who runs the the front of the house and i would say and julie and i talked about this is this was a tough one because what we were talking about earlier about how uh, ambiance and lighting and all that plays, I kind of had to remove myself and just focus on the food here. I think I didn't have any other food during my travels that was so perfectly executed and a return to basics. Like we're talking about a shrimp bisque that sounds kind of, you know, meh on paper, but then when you taste it, it's like, wow, this is, I remember falling in love with bisque for the first Mm -hmm. time or a sauce that, a, a sauce of, a, a duck jus that just is reduced, and the duck is cooked perfectly. Um, and here's this guy who doesn't even come out of the kitchen. He's not looking for any kind of fame. This is what he could afford. Him and his wife could afford to open this place just outside of Atlanta. And I didn't have better food in terms of the the, the technique and the cooking. It, it, it kind of blew me away, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to look past this other stuff that I you know didn't necessarily dig. And this is about the food. And my my parents are from Atlanta, and I took them there twice, and they've probably been a dozen times.
1: Speaking of uh, quick interlude here, uh, in terms of execution, I was at The Grill the other night uh, in the former Four
0: Seasons space here in New
1: York, run by the Carbone guys. uh, And that restaurant opened up a little late for— this list in terms of your guys' research having already gotten it done in terms of getting the magazine out the door.
0: Perhaps next year. Yeah,
1: but they had one dish. It was like a duck breast and it was came to the table and it was just a sliced duck breast with kind of an orange jus sort of, you know, a take on duck a l'orange and um, that's it on a plate. And it was just, you're like, wow. Yeah. That is, it was just so beautifully prepared and the way they hang and dry the duck and then prepare it and just just the perfect right temperature and the glaze was like a little bit sweet but not too sweet and that's really hard to do
0: no and it makes you realize that so much food that's served today has so much bells and whistles on it to hide
1: the fact that like is it really that good to to, to, to strip it down and do one thing really well is, is the hardest thing absolutely all right so number six giant in chicago the year's best dining city
2: Yes. This is one of two Chicago restaurants on the list. Um, this is a restaurant from Jason Vincent, who is a chef who I just kind of love. Um, he cooked at Nightwood, which is sort of a uh, an old, been around for a while, farm to table restaurant in Logan Square that is one of my favorite places to eat in Chicago. Then he was the chef of Nightwood, which sort of similar in Pilsen and then took um, a little bit of a hiatus and then opened this place giant in Logan square. And it's just the perfect neighborhood restaurant. And Jason just has a real warmth and he seems to just have a lot of fun cooking and everyone in the kitchen seems to share in that. And I think the food really reflects that it's just all of the food that you Want to eat. There's, you know, the best onion rings that you've ever had. There's, um, you know, uh, sort of his chef's version of tater tots. There's, a of waffle fries. I mean, there's just this sort of, um, kind of almost funny, um, goofy approach to the food. But then at the same time, they're making, you know, five beautiful pastas in-house and they're really doing like sort of beautiful execution on the food while still having it just be very like craveable delicious dishes. Yeah, the kind of restaurant that if I lived in Chicago I would be there at least once a week.
1: (laughs) Yeah I went there when I was in town last September. Uh, It's a fun restaurant some people might call it sort of Deluxe stoner food, um, but it, there's something mischievous to the to a lot of the dishes. Uh, really delicious, as you said, really well executed. Um, those like those waffle fries you mentioned are they're actually piped out, like
0: correct? Yeah, yeah, they're aerated like yeah. in a CO two and then aerated and and uh, he I puts Basically, them on a waffle grill and then yeah. like does them. Yeah,
1: it's so so they're very like very inventive waffle fries. Uh, and also his food he likes. So many of his yeah. dishes had a, a high degree of chili. Yeah. Even the dessert when we were there.
0: Well, even and even the pastas, which pastas yeah. aren't I mean, you get a little bit of heat in some pastas, but like this stuff was yeah. like it burns. All right, best thing you ate
1: there, Julia.
2: Well, so the best thing I ate there was on my first visit, which was I think like at the tail end of August or early September, and I had this amazing corn salad, mm. which similar to what you were just saying, it tastes It's very just fun and delicious to eat. And then when we called in the recipe from him is when I realized, like, oh, my God, this thing has, like, 20 different components. Like, that's, I think, what makes his food so interesting is you don't realize, like, the layers of flavor and texture that are in every single dish.
1: Yeah, I think we would all appreciate what we're eating at restaurants so much more if we actually knew – Mm-hmm. All the steps yeah. and 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 sort of tr- and effort that chefs put in and go through to 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 achieve a dish. Um, all right, number five, New York
0: City, Brooklyn. This is another restaurant. You've you've been to two of the ten on the list. Yeah, uh, giant. I've big been one, to this one and then Hearts. Uh, this was the way we divided up. Hearts. That's so that's number five. Hearts in Hearts Brooklyn. in Brooklyn. H A R T apostrophe S. This was Julia's kind of. Love Child.
1: This... Oh well, no! I think she has another oh. love child. Yeah, there's a different Love Child named Philip. Um, but <laughs> this is this is like this is kind of a bon appetit Love Child. As, as you guys talked about, every year there's kind of that one restaurant that everyone on staff ends up going to, whether it was like Wild Air last year, Estella, uh, the year Stella the year before, Stella the year before, and it's just like people just sort of pile on to these places. What did you like about Hearts, Julia? I just loved the simplicity of it.
2: I was blown away by how just dialed in the food was from the minute that they opened. And it it's sort of a blessing and a curse to have a restaurant in New York City because on the one hand, it means that we can go back and revisit it as many times as we want. And on the other hand, um, it means that we can, we can do that. And so we can see, you know, where a restaurant might falter or, you know, have inconsistencies or whatever. And hearts is so unbelievably consistent every time I went, which I mean, I can't even count the number of times that I've been there. And it's just amazing. I thought, um, with the chef, Nick Perkins, who is an alum of Andrew Tarlow's restaurants, which are sort of known for this very rustic, beautiful um, style of cooking. It was amazing to me what he was able to do with just a really delicious, thick cut piece of toast, really high quality olive oil, the freshest seafood. Those things together make dishes like the clam toast, which has sort of become like an iconic. Dish of the restaurant. And I would say that was, if I had to pick one thing there that was my favorite, I would, I would probably say that tied with the olive oil cake. Um, and I just really, um, you know, it's that restaurant where anytime I have someone who's coming in from out of town and they're like, where should we go? It's always hearts. And I, I, um, I think they just have a really good attitude as well. You know, there's a lot of restaurants in um, New York that sort of open with a lot of hype and they don't live up to that and hearts is sort of the opposite it just always feels very understated and um it's also a really great place to drink wine they have a wonderful natural wine
1: i also think i mean hearts is representative of of what we've seen in american dining over the last five years that it's it's an unassuming place and in particular it's in bedside right outside a subway stop in a Quirky little oblong shaped room. Yeah, it's a weird um, place. It's you know, it's not some big build out. It's not super impressive from the outside, but you know, just really beautifully prepared, thoughtful food, uh, and the focus is on the food. And, and you don't have to spend half a million dollars to open a restaurant anymore. You can you can no. have great cooking, and even a tiny little place in Bed Stuy. And it's
0: also, I have to say that you know, Brooklyn restaurants gained a reputation across the world as kind of being <laughs> these quirky little. I think sometimes pretentious and, and with poor service and nobody smiled and a little too cool for school. Um, and I, hearts is not that at all. I mean, it, 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 it is a neighborhood restaurant trying to be a part of the community there. And I think if, next time you're in New York city, go out to hearts and, and see kind of what, what we're lucky enough to live in New York city and to discover these kind of restaurants. Um, They're pretty special. Uh, So number four on the list is another weird weird place. This is Polizzi Social (laughs) Club in uh, Philadelphia. The fact
1: that that you haven't taken me here makes me angry at you. Well,
0: here's the thing about this place, and and I just want to put this out here, and this is probably going to make some people pretty upset. This is a (laughs) members-only Italian-American kind of throwback restaurant. It's in South Philly all the vinyl siding. It's basically on a row of of houses and it looks like a house. There's just a little red neon sign that says Polizzi Social Club. So the story about this place is Joey Baldino, who has an amazing restaurant uh, just across the the bridge in New Jersey called Zeppoli. His uncle was a member of this private Italian social club that you see throughout the Northeast and um, especially in New York. And, his It was basically vacant for a while, and his uncle came to him and said, "Do you want this space?" and he was like, Sure, is this is kind of the food so what he's done is taken those italian American classics that he grew up with, kind of tweaked them, but kept them you know recognizable to everybody and it it literally like when you open the door it's like kind of Pompeii like nothing has changed. The old cigarette machine is still there the 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 vinyl uh bar is there it's 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 kitschy but without being too cute or feeling like some sort of disney world yeah. version of it now i went with the first time i went was with joe badia who owns badia pizzeria they're only open from thursday to sunday and he had already gotten a membership here's how you get a membership you show up at they open at 6 p.m you show up as maybe at 5 30 you knock on the door and there'll be this little you know, uh, sliding thing that yeah. you can just see somebody's eyes. Um, <laughs> it's a it's it's a little weird, but and it costs twenty dollars to get a membership.
1: Do they size you up and like, yeah, no? You know,
0: I don't know. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I I was able to to get a membership, um, which I'll come back to that in two seconds. But um, so recently, they've kind of uh, stopped giving memberships to people because it's getting a little bit crazy, mm. and they want to keep it uh, normal. The best way to get in is to make friends with somebody who's already a member and any member can take up to three non-members. Oh, cool. So there is a way to get in. So it's basically like Rayos, uptown well, New Well York. that's the thing. People are gonna get upset, but it's you know, you talk about some of the places that have been on our, you know, list in years past, like Bad Saint or State Bird Provisions or or Rose's Luxury. You can wait three or four hours to get in here. This you have a fighting chance to get into. And yeah. once you are in it is worth it. It's not pretentious. There's nobody, you know, pouring crystal or like, it's just yeah. solid, humble food. That's really cool.
1: Uh, best thing he ate there?
0: Man, he does this amazing bread, kind of bread plate that has um, little these little triangle uh, kind of pockets that have anchovy stuff in. He makes his own grissini, which is the long kind oh. of bread stick. He makes a classic like uh, sesame seeded loaf. And then it comes with this, Kind of cooked down red sauce that is kind of break is broken, mm-hmm. um, so the oils kind of separate, yeah. and you just dip that, and you're drinking mm. a martini, and it's just, God, it's so awesome. No,lton, don't, don't fill up on the bread, though, man. No, don't fill up on the bread. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number three, going up to San Francisco, Julia.
2: Number three is Mister Juice. Um, this is a. Chinese-American restaurant in the heart of San Francisco's Chinatown. Uh, It's run by Brandon Chu, who, as Andrew mentioned, is another one of those chefs who we're always sort of just following. He's been um, sort of on the verge of opening this place, Mr. Chu's, for a few years now. And um, it really did live up to all of that anticipation. It's a beautiful restaurant that's in what used to be a um, sort of Chinese banquet hall called Four C's, And he really maintained a lot of the elements of that old space while creating food that feels very sort of like fresh, you know, Bay Area-ish in terms of sourcing Really, really, really good ingredients and um, cooking them with sort of like a lighter touch. Um, And everything um, in everything about the space is just so personal to him. And it was so, it's another one of those things where like you wish that everyone could go there, could then talk to him for an hour because you really see. Um, how every detail um, just has, like, a specific meaning to him, whether it's, um, you know, the design of the menu or the, um, the light fixtures that they refurbished from the old force base or his, the process that he uses to age the duck. Um, everything is just really thoughtful and um, really um, just lovely I can't wait to go what? back there. My sister lives in San Francisco, so that's one where I know uh, I'll be back there soon.
1: Where Two things, two questions. Where, where did uh, Brenner work before opening the restaurant?
2: So he was a chef at Bar Agricole um, uh, before Mr. Jews and then he spent a lot of time on the line at um, Quinn's in San Francisco and then also Jeannie Cafe. So he sort of has, like, the essential San Francisco resume.
1: (laughs) And then a couple of, so he took this sort of classic San Francisco schooling and training, appreciation for the finest ingredients and locally sourced and organic and all that. Uh, And what are some of the dishes he's applying those to at Mr. Juice to give us that sense of sort of classic Chinese American cooking, but yet updated.
2: So like the Peking duck, for example, um, which is a very classic dish that many people associate with Chinese restaurants in America. Um, he does his version of that where he sources these, you know, the best duck that he can find. I think they're from a farm called Liberty Farms, Um and then he uses the sort of traditional technique of um how he air air dries them. Um Another example would be like the Berkshire pork buns, which are another thing that you know you've probably seen a million times, but in his version, um, he doesn't use any um, like food dye or um, food coloring. And so the color comes all from, you know, I think it's from yeast or other like red vegetables. He just, um, trying to think of some better examples.
1: What about? And he does all those co- different dumplings, a whole variety of dumplings that are really unique in their with their fillings and, and colorings and whatnot. Correct? Yeah,
2: yeah. He does um, these multicolored dumplings. Did that? Did that photo end up in the magazine? I'm so out of it. <laughs> yes, <laughs>
0: yes, it did, <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's, it's. We call it Mr. Jew and the Technicolor dumplings. It's. I think it's probably the most one of the most compelling photos in the magazine yeah. this month. And it. He uses everything from like sweet potatoes to beets to uh pea shoots to make this this dough that goes around a dumpling and it's just and and then the ingredients are like lamb and it's just it's 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 again it's so familiar to you when you sit down and then you taste it and it's like wow I don't remember my Chinese American food tasting this yeah. good you know growing up. No, I love that
1: about this country is that we sort of evolve and we and we experiment and, and we come up with something new. All right, we got two left. Uh number 2 Joya, we're going back to your hometown, Chicago. What do we got?
2: Yes. Elski, I uh, love this restaurant so much. Um, the name Elski is actually Danish for love, um, which makes sense because the chefs are husband and wife, David and Anna Posey. And as we were talking about earlier, this is really an example of that sort of um, culture of mentorship that exists in Chicago because both David and Anna worked um at Paul Kahn's restaurants, David was the chef of Blackbird for a while. Anna was the future chef of Publican. Um, they opened their own place in the West Loop. It's a beautiful restaurant. It has sort of a, a I want to say a Danish modern look to it. It's very minimalist and understated and has lots of personal touches. Like Anna is also an artist and she drew the wallpaper that's in the bathroom. And um, it has this great outdoor area where they have a fire pit and they have benches around it. And I was, the first time I was there, I was there in the winter and they had animal pelts draped on the benches and it had almost that like Fabrican type of vibe to the, the outdoors. And then the food that they cook is very much like modern, contemporary American, which is sort of a generic description, but I think it's just very hard to describe. I mean, it's like perfectly executed. They have tasting menu, or you can do a la carte. And they have just this very um, sophisticated approach to flavor where, I mean, but at the same time, the food is so delicious. And I think a lot of times you see food that looks like art, you know, looks so beautiful and then you bite into it and you're like, okay, this tastes like cardboard. Like it, often there's like a mismatch between those two things. And I think one thing that makes this restaurant so special is like the food is so elevated and sophisticated, but it tastes, um, almost like a little bit nostalgic and, um, Just, like, fires on all those, like, pleasure centers of eating that I think fine dining often misses. Uh,
1: Most favorite dish?
2: My favorite are all of Anna's desserts. I love all the savory food, but I am – Andrew actually makes fun of me because I am so obsessed with the desserts there. (laughs) Um, I just think that that she's a genius.
1: All right. So if you're going to order one dessert, if you're a listener, what are you ordering?
2: Um, I think that the one dessert that is sort of a mainstay on the menu, because the desserts are very much seasonal, just like the rest of the menu, um, is the black and white halva tart, which we also have the recipe for on Um, And that is a speculous cookie tart shell filled with um, black and white sesame mousse and crumbled halva. It is incredible.
1: All right, Andrew Knowlton, the number one restaurant in America, which I would not describe as minimalist or tasting menu-y or elevated. Uh, what do we got?
0: Drum roll. It's Turkey and the Wolf in New Orleans, Louisiana. So interesting story about this. When Julia and I had the top 10, we knew we loved these 10 restaurants that you've just heard about. And then we did this exercise where we said, okay, rank, rank them. What you think?
1: What each of you would rank? What yeah. each
0: of us would rank them, and this is no joke. Julia can can confirm this: that we had the top five restaurants in the exact same order. Oh, wow. Both of us, so no negotiating. So I think we both were, had a sigh of relief because Turkey and the Wolf is this weird sandwich shop um, in the Irish Channel neighborhood of New Orleans, kind of sleepy for for New Orleans. And it's it's weird, right, Julia? It's a weird, kind of funky. Uh, the chef Mason Hereford, is crazy. The only thing he's better at than making sandwiches is inline skating. That's I mean, if that says anything, don't hold that against him. Um, it you know it's counter service. You walk in and they're blasting whatever hip hop or whatever like bad eighties music. They've um, got crazy tattoos. There's pictures of. All the salt and pepper shakers are, um, you know, little cartoon figurines that his mother had collected with, for him on eBay. Um, and you sit, you order, and then you sit down and your sandwich comes, and it's just like time stops for a minute. It's like the most amazing food experience I think both Julia and I had. And it just happened to be a sandwich. For me, it was something called a collard green melt. So it was loosely based on a patty melt um it was braised greens that better than any southern restaurant i've had there was a kind of a spicy russian meats pimento cheese dressing um this kind of beautiful coleslaw made with duke's mayonnaise which they go through more duke's mayonnaise than one would ever think um and then it's a triple decker sandwich on rye and just the way it comes together and you eat it it stays together it, it's better than any patty melt I've had. It's better than any pastrami on rye I've ever had. And it just happens to be a vegetarian sandwich at the same time. I could talk about the bologna sandwich. Let's talk about
1: the bologna sandwich.
0: So the bologna sandwich, it, it comes on basically Texas toast that a friend uh, of of Mason makes for him. Um, really thick cut. Um the, the bologna is made. And they,
1: and they griddle that toast right. in butter so it gets nice and golden right. brown and, on and the And something
0: outside. he does that him and his sous chef, Colleen, who deserves a shout out because she really, uh, she keeps Mason in line. Um, they let the bread rest. So w- w- when the bread comes off the griddle, they, almost like you would a steak, they let it rest. Mm. So the oils kind of go back in. Temperature gets nice when you put the mayonnaise yeah. on it, and it, he says it makes it crisper. If you just take it out real yeah. quick, it it'll steam. Um, so they they have ba- um, sorry, they have bologna that a friend of theirs makes. They use American cheese, a specific kind called Gol- Golden Harvest. They they tasted over twenty <laughs> American cheeses. Wow, that sounds like a scary taste test. Golden <laughs> Harvest, and then it and then it, it gets like shreddis, which is a signature of. Uh, turkey and the wolf, which is basically shredded lettuce. They call it shreddice. A shit ton of Duke's mayo, more than you think necessary. And then it gets topped with vinegar-soaked potato chips. Homemade potato chips? Homemade potato chips. Mm. And then you just kind of, when it comes to your plate, it looks like one of those sandwiches you were talking about that you could not eat, that you need a knife and fork. But then you smash it down, Mm. and it kind of, that white bread is almost like a Martin's potato roll where it kind of forms around it and creates Mm. this pocket. And you bite into it, and it's just like all those, you know, bologna sandwiches with yellow mustard on white bread that my mom made, and um, and all the variations that you can have, where you put American cheese, and that cheese would get stuck stuck on the roof of your mouth behind your teeth. Yep, that is what that sandwich does, and it 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 takes every nostalgic thing that you've ever thought about a food you grew up with, and it just runs with it and surpasses it, and for me. My food my food, kind of memories and taste don't happen at the restaurant. It's like two weeks later. I could not get Turkey and the Wolf and its sandwiches out of my mind six months later. And I think Julia feels the same way.
2: When we were putting together the list, I think both of us were thinking, what are the places that we had the best time at? And there was just no question that Turkey and the Wolf was number one on that list. It was just... It's just such a fun, enjoyable, pleasurable restaurant to go to. And I think that um, you couldn't find a less self-serious restaurant in the country. And it's just, um, I think that that's what people are looking for. I mean, that's certainly what, what I'm looking for when I go out is, a place where I can like truly and just enjoy the the food and just enjoy being there. And,
0: yeah. and I think one thing I want to point out that I think, I don't want to call it the turkey and wolf effect because there's other restaurants that have done it. But, you know, Mason did the classical route. He worked at Coquette for six years, which is a f- kind of a fancier restaurant in New Orleans. He he used tweezers. He, he did beat eight ways. And I think what you're seeing a lot of times now is chefs are kind of, they want a different lifestyle. They don't want to kill themselves in kitchens and they want to have a life and they want to eat the food they want to eat. And I think that's what Turkey and the Wolf, I think you're going to see a lot more of that if Chef's doing yeah,
1: that. Yeah, it's fun. It's delicious. Turkey Wolf is also daytime only, correct? If you want to go?
0: They they close at 9, 9.30 okay, or 10. Okay. So they have right. a full bar and it, it gets rowdy. I have a feeling that that place is going to morph. Uh, their Sandwiches will always be the backbone of that place. But I think with the success um, that they've had that, they are. They have more ambition than they lead on. Mm. And I think you're going to see them morph probably into a full-blown restaurant at some point.
1: All right, good to know. Um, Julia Kramer, thank you for calling in. Give Philip a kiss for us. Uh, Knowlton, I will. Thank you as always. And until next year, uh, you can check out the Hot 10, America's Best New Restaurants, on bonappetit.com. Or you can pick up the September issue of Bon Appetit magazine on newsstands. Thanks, guys. Thank you.